All right, and welcome to a very special live episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And we are talking about art therapy today, and we have a, some really great guests for that conversation. So first, the chair of the UW-Green Bay art program, Allison Gates. Hi, thanks for having me, Ryan. <laughs> you bet, thanks for being here. Allison, can you tell people a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of courses you teach, <clears throat> the, the expertise, things like that? Sure, um, well, I've been at uh, UW-Green Bay since 2001. I have been teaching in the art program that whole time. I also teach in women's and gender studies. My major studio area is textiles, but I've also taught in the foundations program, um, drawing and two-dimensional design. In the fall, I get to teach three-dimensional design, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. And I've taught a little bit of art theory. Okay. And uh, before we end today, I definitely want to make sure we talk a little bit about the FLAX program, because I think it's such a cool thing. I would cool be happy thing. to awesome. talk about yes. the UWGB <laughs> FLAX project. Yes. So, good. Yes. And we should have given Allison a round of applause. So, thank you so oh. much. <laughs> Second, we have a, a colleague of mine in the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay, a podcast regular at this point, right? Because this is your second episode. Second one, yeah. <laughs> that works. That's a regular. We haven't had that many episodes. Um, and uh, uh, like I said, a podcast regular. Uh, Sawa Senzaki. How are you, Sawa? Good. Thank you, Ryan. You bet. Um, can you uh, also maybe just tell people a little bit about yes. uh, yourself? So I'm an assistant professor in psychology and human development. I teach classes more in relation to infancy and early childhood, intro to human development and cross-cultural human development. For my undergraduate, I did an art therapy bachelor's degree, and which was really fun, and I learned tones. Um, I noticed that I'm not really good at helping people. So that's why I'm not a therapist. <laughs> Instead, I really like doing research, and that's why I got my PhD in psychology to do uh, more uh, research. But I think it's super interesting. Art therapy is just a really neat field, and I think it's really great. Very good. Thanks so much. And a round of applause for Silas. <laughs> And finally, a registered art therapist and a practicing social worker, Casey Coughlin. How are you, Casey? Hi. Thanks for having me. You bet. Can you tell uh, people a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I got a bachelor's degree in fine arts from the University of Montana in Missoula. Um, from there, without having any <laughs> career after that to, to speak of, I, I was doing um, a lot of human services type jobs. Okay. I got more and more into social work. Um, and I was still creating a lot of artwork. Mm -hmm. I wound up going to um, UW-Superior for a master's in art therapy. That's where okay. I, I was able to graduate and become a registered art therapist after that, after graduation. Um, and I just graduated from UW-Green Bay last, last year with my master's in social work. Nicely done, congratulations. Thank so you. round of applause for that and for education in general. The, the idea for this episode actually started, like all things in my life, I think, <laughs> on Facebook. Um, and so uh, over the winter break, I had been, um, it was actually shortly after um, 
Carrie Fisher passed away, I was reflecting on some things that I'd read about uh, her and her experience with mental illness, and it got me thinking just in general about some changes I wanted to make to a course I teach, and so I posted just asking my, my many talented uh, friends, um, what are some examples of artists uh, who have, um, and, and whose work is sort of touches on the area of mental illness, and it, more or less exploded with examples from lots and lots of people, um, many here on UW Green Bay, at UW Green Bay, but then elsewhere too. Um, and, it, and then it, it's led to kind of a, a I guess, back-channel conversation between Allison and I about kind of that, the, the relationship between art and creativity. And, and I want to start there before we move into the, the art therapy stuff. Um, this relationship between creativity and mental illness is one that is kind of discussed often. Um, is that, I guess, Allison, I'll start with you, is that something that kind of comes up in art classes? Is that something that is discussed? And <clears throat> is it a myth? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it does come up in art classes. I would have, I, I would have thought. I think anybody here who has taken an art class has probably um, called themselves crazy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think um, there is a... Uh, something of a stigma attached to announcing to the world that you are an artist and that is directly related to this idea that artists are um, unstable individuals mentally. Uh, a lot of the way that we look at the world is at odds with um, mainstream sorts of um, attitudes and Within the art world, you, you, you know, all you have to do is take one art history class, especially if you take a 20th century art history class, you begin to encounter this recurring theme of um, alcohol abuse or drug abuse or schizophrenia uh, because in some ways it's almost fetishized uh, within the art world that uh, the greatest artists were the craziest artists. That can't actually be true because in order to be a successful artist, you do have to possess discipline and drive and a lot of things that are really valued in mm -hmm. um, the business world, for instance, and art is hard work. Mm -hmm. um, if you were really that off the rails, you probably would not be able to produce enough in order to um, realize yourself as a professional artist. So. Okay. And those are some things that come up. Um, and a lot of the things that uh, I see my students doing and that I know other professional artists do, and you probably have seen this too, uh, you do things like you'll stay up all night because you're in a groove. Mm -hmm. Or you will um, have in your possession collections of weird things like human hair or dog teeth. You know, because oh, I could use that somehow, right? You no, know, at first I, I was like, I always have human right? hair with me, but I don't always have dog teeth. Do you have boxes me, of so. other people's no, human hair? That that's is, that's that really is, no. an issue. Like, you have those moments where you think, if I die on my way home tonight, what are they going to find in my house, and what conclusions are they going to reach about that? And, and then you begin to question your own sanity. All right. Well, it, it actually came up in a class of mine once when we were talking about, actually, it was 
among, when we were talking about the mood disorders and so depression and or bipolar we were, we were discussing and someone, a student asked about this relationship between mental health and, and I pointed to some examples of, of famous artists who had, you know, and most of these to be honest I get from textbooks I use, you mm -hmm. know, that and, um, but actually I had two students in my class at the time who were both art majors as well and both of them pointed out that they they had discussed that in some of their classes as a myth, that this, I mean, more or less saying what, what you just said right there. Um, and so it, it got me, I started kind of taking a look at the research actually just recently about the relationship between creativity and mental illness. And I'll be honest, my read of the research, and so I don't know if you've looked at this or Casey, I don't know the degree to which you've looked at this, but my read of the research is that it's pretty messy. Um, there's a lot of, the findings are really complicated. Um, so I don't know, is, has that been your experience? Or are you familiar with Sawa or Casey, the, some of the research on? Yeah, I think it's, it, it is in research, I think it's messy. And also, it's difficult to see which one comes first, kind of like chicken and eggs problem. And right. I was, so my, my research field is more into like infancy and early childhood. So what I was looking at was ch people or children with autism. And um, there are some individuals with autism, sometimes have great, excellent talents. A lot of them are maybe art, some of them maybe math, kind of like Raymond in the movie. But, um, um, but so it, somebody talked about there's possibility of some relationships with autism and brain development and creativity, and perhaps one side of the brain got um, some kind of impacts and that could contribute it to the other side of the brain to develop, which may perhaps lead to different kind of expression artistically or other talents. So I think there are some links that are really interesting, but in terms of really empirical studies, I think it's difficult. It, right. It's difficult to do research because we can't randomly make mm -hmm. people to have autism or not, or, <laughs> <laughs> or randomly right. make people really great artists or not. Um, mm -hmm. It'd be great if I can randomly become a great artist, but <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's difficult to say right. what's causing or whatnot. Right. And I, and I think so, and that is so much of the work that I looked at, and, and this is relatively briefly, but that I've looked at is correlational, right? It is right. just looking at, okay, we're going to study, uh, you know, a group of artists, maybe compare them to a group of non-artists and, and look at sort of base rates, you know, what, what, right. what's the incidence of depression or bipolar disorder or whatever. Um, I think so much of this comes from a discussion of um, some of the big picture examples. There's mm -hmm. some of the, you know, the, your, your, I mean, Van Gogh, for example, right. is the one. And Allison, I know, right. I think you have feelings about Van Gogh. I Am have I correct? feelings about Van Gogh. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you share them? <laughs> well, I kind of feel like he's, um, uh, he's the brush that we're all painted with, you mm -hmm. know, right. because he had that sensational moment in his life where he did where he was in such a painful place that he cut his own ear off. Um, he, for some reason, that's the, the specter that haunts all of the parents of all of the art students I've ever met. Like, oh my gosh, my child is going to major in art. Does that mean that they're going to be crazy like Van Gogh? Mm -hmm. um, and there's no doubt that Van Gogh was an incredibly passionate person and he probably in our day and age would be would have been treated for a lot of the things that he was going through um, 
and he's by no reason by no means the only one he's just the most dramatic uh and and of course he did commit suicide so his end is logical if you look at his mm-hmm. life based on what we know um and he also has captured i think the public imagination mm-hmm. um anyone who's ever seen that old movie with kirk douglas lust for life if you've ever seen that look for it it's it's actually quite hilarious um the way that kirk douglas plays van gogh as a man who is suffering from mental illness is um so overblown that it's comical at points but it also is a wince inducing movie for most of us who work as artists um that that's sort of the the major thing that people point to oh what about van gogh uh the other two that i think are sort of in that same camp would be uh, Goya, Francisco Goya, and also um, Basquiat. Um, and they were, you know, people whose mental illness was documented to, uh, to a great degree through their art, but also uh, because they were notorious. People told stories about them. The vast majority of artists I know are real boring, middle-class folk. I would be shocked if my neighbors even knew what I did for a living. I blend in that well. (laughs) And most of us are more introverted. Um, Artists tend to work alone quite a bit. Um, So the fact that that there are these few examples who were um, sort of visibly, publicly talked about that seems to to um, right. have formulated the stereotype of artists mm-hmm. yeah and i think that really as we know i mean it, stories like that move pretty quickly right, right, right <laughs> and, yeah. they, and they're the kinds of things that people remember and the kind of things that people talk about yeah if, if you cut your ear off we yes. would all wonder about psychologists yeah so that's a study we could do um where, <laughs> well, well, you didn't. okay no i'm good i'm good so <laughs> so um well i read this so this was an article that actually got posted during the facebook discussion on this very topic and there's a quote in there that i wanted to unpack a little bit before we move into the discussion of art therapy because i thought it was really interesting And so um, many personality characteristics of creative people make them more vulnerable, including openness to new experiences, a tolerance for ambiguity, and an approach to life in the world that is is relatively free of preconceptions. This flexibility permits them to perceive things in a fresh and novel way, which is an important basis for creativity, but it also means that their inner world is complex, ambiguous, and filled with shades of gray rather than black and white. What is what are your reactions to that as you read it? Anyone? Yes. Yes. <laughs> A solid yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I, um, that article is interesting because of the number of times the word ambiguity comes I, up, um, and I just I tried to reread it this morning uh, in preparation for coming here today. Uh, I think ambiguity is a place where most artists feel pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, which is terrible in academia when we have to make a decision about the <laughs> art faculty. It's bad. Um, but we, we do have this comfort zone where things don't have to be real concrete for us in mm-hmm. order for us to move ahead. Um, there's 
a see what happens kind of attitude or we'll try it if it doesn't work we'll go back and we'll do something else and and we tend to be okay with that um mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't and a mm -hmm. lot of americans especially have super hard time with gray areas mm -hmm. and we've seen this in the political arena becoming more and more polarized you're either this or you're that um and i think that um artists really aren't this or that and we change mm -hmm. we, we can't really pin us down right. all the time so that's yeah. frustrating for others around us who wish we would just make up our minds already right and you know it's it, it's funny you bring that up because so the the phrase tolerance for ambiguity used to be in the learning outcomes for psychology and really yes and then they <laughs> revised the this is american psychological association learning outcomes and they revised those learning outcomes a few years ago and the, the, that phrase was removed and I, I don't know the backstory to why but um, I will say I actually don't find that psychology students are very comfortable with ambiguity. I don't know Sal, if you've had that experience or, or not but I agree. Yeah and it seems like so often they they just they want answers. Right? <laughs> it's like I want to know what causes X, what causes Y, how do we what do we do about whatever and um and it's so it was disappointing to me when those were removed because i always thought that that was a really important aspect of our of our uh, learning outcomes but. well i have to say that in the beginning not all art students are that comfortable mm -hmm. um early on in introductory classes you'll get that just tell me what you mm -hmm. want um and my answer to that question is just show me something i've never seen before <laughs> that is what i want that's what mm -hmm. i want to see um and that really makes my students mad, but on the other <laughs> hand, yeah, once they get used to that, then they're used to the ambiguity and they, um, because in that is permission to fail. And I think American college students don't feel that they have permission to try and not succeed. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's um, always that idea that you wanna know exactly what somebody is asking of you so that you can answer the question correctly. And in art, there are infinite correct answers to whatever problem your professor might pose to you. Yeah, it's so funny. I um, So I've never really taken, that I can think of, an art class in college, but I took a handful of literature classes. And I remember always thinking as a student that there was when I read poetry or, or anything like that, that there was, it was like I was trying to uncrack a code or something, not uncrack, just crack a code. And, um, <laughs> and that there was a correct answer and that my professor knew it and that I had to find it, you know, and that that was the goal. And, and my problem was just that I was too stupid to figure it out, you know? And, and I think that the, it, it was actually, frankly, relatively recent that I started to think about literature differently and um, and I but it's also sometimes I think as a teacher it's difficult because I, I have similar feelings with students there are times when what I what I'm looking for from them is to be wowed is to be sort of surprised by something I haven't seen before but it is a really challenging space to work through um, because I think like you said the permission to fail that mm -hmm. um, I think they're approaching things the same way I approached literature and frankly probably art there's a right answer tell me what it is right yes so. i think mm -hmm. that's true mm -hmm. um and it, it um there are right answers in art when we're mm -hmm. talking about things like technique or craftsmanship or 
well, the physical aspect of it. But when we're talking about the conceptual or, um, you know, the form that something's going to take, that has to come from imagination. And that's where you have to be definitely confident in your ability to navigate and come up with a solution to a problem. Well, since we're already kind of talking about a merging of these two majors, uh, more or less, let's take a moment to take some time to talk about art therapy, because um, this is something that I've been exposed to sort of tangentially for a while, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. So Casey, maybe you can start with just a description for people of what it is. So what is art therapy and what do art therapists do? It's really hard to explain. I get asked that question all the time and I've never answered it the same. All right. The, the same way twice. I'm okay with ambiguity, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'll try again this time. Uh, um, what I usually tell people is, is, for me, it's really really a big part of it. The, the, deep, the more I talk about it, the deeper it kind of goes. So at the surface, I just like to say it's a way for me to, to do counseling, to get to counseling, to therapy, to get a person to put themselves in a therapy therapeutic moment, therapeutic session, uh, sort of uh, a ther therapeutic sort of session with on their own accord, you mm -hmm. know, and through through art and imagery. Um, it's really, to me, it can be that simple. It's it's counseling and therapy with um, masked by art making, I guess, so okay. to speak. Okay. Well, so describe mm -hmm. for me what a, what a session looks like, mm -hmm. if you can. Yeah, or it, what might have it probably sure, looks lots sure. of ways. Um, it looks a lot like art class. Okay. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, it looks a lot like uh, drawing one hundred and one. Um, in a lot of ways, it is. Some people come there and they they want to know how to draw, how to make art. Where do I start? Mm -hmm. They think it's going to be wonderful, um, and a lot of times it is. And and so a lot of times you're just starting right there. You're starting at the beginning. What is art? How do you make art? What do you want to do? So I'm, I'm interviewing them a lot of times, like, what, what do you want from this? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times that's what the first session looks like. It looks like a lot of sort of feeling out why they're coming to me, what they, what, what they perceive to be art therapy, mm -hmm. and then honing in on how I can get them to a therapeutic place through creating okay. artwork. Um, Is it typically individuals or a group, or could it be I, It even? can be both, and I've done okay. both, but I really prefer individuals. So okay. I can really hone in on Right. Is this is this something you're going to benefit from? And if so, let's get there. And right. you can get there a lot quicker with individuals. Groups are fun, but it turns into <clears throat> I don't. It, it's hard to get anywhere really deep with a group yeah. of people. I think making artwork. Um, but I would for individual sessions. It's in a more general sense. It really it, it can look vastly different depending on mm -hmm. the age and the individual and a lot of other characteristics, personal characteristics. Um, and getting f a feel for the materials is a big part of it. D would, um, if other people have questions, by the way, I mean, but um, do, um, does the, the client typically drive the materials? Is it, or is there something you gravitate towards or? I like to feel out how much of a nudge they need. And okay. I have my sort of go-tos, okay. pastels, charcoals, um, paint, acrylic paint, okay. the simpler things to manage. To me, it's it's a distraction. It's it's a little bit of a, um, the materials are, what the materials are 
is not important to me, so I want to get past that as quickly as possible and into the, the flow of the, the art making itself. Um, so if they come with an idea of what they want to do, mm -hmm. particularly, which is, is rare in my experience, yeah. they don't. And if they do, then I, by all means, I go and get it. But, um, or I have it ready for them. Yeah. But usually they're looking mm -hmm. to me for what to use and, mm -hmm. and where to start. Okay. <clears throat> are, there, um, are there particular clients that seem to gravitate best to this? Are there, is it, I, um, I, I mean, in my reading, it's, I've seen everything from kids to veterans to, yeah. is there a... In my experience, it really goes back to that, that um, in a lot of ways, it goes back to that, that question about what, what drives artists. Is it, is it diligence and hard work, or is it creativity and being inspired? And I see the two, I see, mm -hmm. I see the people that respond to art therapy are typically one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, not to generalize and categorize people, but mm -hmm. I would say more so the diligence part though. Like you, you have to understand it's for you, it's for, it's for healing, it's for therapy. And um, so that, that takes work. Like you're saying, art is hard work. Mm -hmm. And when you have emotions involved, it's even harder. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think it's gonna be wonderful and they just don't have the physical energy to mm -hmm. do it. They're, they're already drained from illness, mental illness, mm -hmm. grief. <clears throat> if, what are some of the benefits above it. So my background is in counseling psychology. Yeah. And so what, and, but I've been, so I've been kind of loosely familiar, like I said, never took an art class that I can think of. Um, <laughs> it was, the, yeah, the, it, a case of me not feeling like I had strengths in that area. <laughs> um, we can help you with that, right? I, I bet. And, um, so maybe I should be, be taking... happy to have you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet. Um, so what, what are some of the benefits above and beyond counseling, or not necessarily even above and beyond, but in addition to just the kind of traditional counseling? Mm -hmm. Giving people, letting people stumble upon or realize or actualize the gift of art making. Um, being able to own it, going mm -hmm. away, going away from it, knowing that art making is not something foreign mm -hmm. to them any longer. Um, it's just as simple as being honest with mm -hmm. themselves and honest with the materials. Um, to me, that's 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 a common benefit that I see. Mm -hmm. Another another common one is is tapping into energy. Not to get metaphysical or anything, because I'm I'm not, but. <laughs> Tapping into the the energy involved when you're into it, when you're in the moment, when you're when you're feeling it, when you're in the flow, when you're experiencing flow, mm -hmm. that's a powerful thing. Um, that's uh, you know similar to a meditative, meditative state, and it's it's healing and it's healthy. Mm -hmm. It can be, and so that's a wonderful gift mm -hmm. you can give yourself. And I like to I like to think that I help people get there. Mm -hmm. Some people sometimes. Right. Yeah, it? please jump so in. So I think so. I'm not an art therapist. <laughs> this is just my reading from it. But um, I think another thing that's really interesting, especially for young children, is that when you have those traumatic events, 
whatever that might be, sometimes it's difficult to put thoughts and feelings into words. Mm -hmm. When you're doing counseling, you have to explain your feelings and emotions and mm -hmm. thoughts, but that could be really challenging. If we think about it, we dream in pictures, right? We don't dream in words. Mm -hmm. So this process of putting thoughts into words, we do this, everyone does this without thinking about it, but it could be really difficult when you're mm -hmm. under stress or trauma. Um, and I think art kind of allows to put pictures into pictures or art, like Alison said, allows ambiguity. Like if you have love and hate, you can put both of those emotions in one picture, which is really wonderful. But hmm. sometimes that could be hard to explain in words, right. those complicated emotions and feelings. Right. So I think that's really neat about putting art and therapy together. Yeah. I think of, um, and I see this with my students, um, I think art, visual art, but also probably music, poetry. Um, it, it's like learning another language. It's giving you tools to express yourself in a way that is nonverbal. And we live in a society that's full of images, but we don't have a lot of visual literacy as a culture. Uh, and when you give someone the tools to express themselves without having to choose verbal vocabulary um, mm -hmm. and you give them a visual vocabulary sometimes the verbal vocabulary can come later right. um, but, but I see this as especially critique um, if a student stands there and they talk and talk and talk and talk and we're looking at a lump of clay uh, then the question is you know is, is your object actually expressing what you wanted to express mm -hmm. however I think that if you're not facing critique if you're not facing the criticism which you wouldn't be in a counseling situation uh, that object or picture that you just made can be the catalyst to allowing um, it just to get it out to, mm -hmm. to get whatever emotions that you're having a hard time putting mm -hmm. uh, voice to to get them to come out of yourself. That's really fascinating to me. I mean, I, as someone who studies emotions and spends a lot of time thinking about emotions, you know, the, the, the idea of this as another language to communicate, what I think is a really complicated thing to communicate always. I mean, what, what a person is feeling is, is always such a, a complicated, complicated thing and, and understanding that is complicated, but then trying to express it is so challenging that I, the idea of giving people another language or tools is really intriguing to me. Um, talk a little bit about the, the program here, because there's a new program. Allison, yes. Maybe you can... Are we in our second year? I think so. I that believe was... we are. Um, well, this came about as um, me being responsive to requests. <laughs> uh, for years, I have said, well, you know, we should look at whether or not we can offer um, some degree granting tool for art therapy because I always have students who say, well, I'm really interested in that field. Um, I want to work with people, but I don't want to be a teacher. Um, and uh, also because it sounds like a career, you know, <laughs> artist doesn't sound like a career, but art therapist sounds like a career, right? So I'm always sensitive to that. I always ask a lot of questions to make sure that that's not really the motivator. Um, Can I quick tell the story about my son going as an artist for career day? And so, in my, so my son for career day, he's, he was in kindergarten, he wanted to go as an artist, and so he put on a, an apron and took some paintbrushes and a 
a thing that you hold in your a hand. Palette. A palette. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm great. I'm a great mentor for him. Um, and so, uh, and so, but posted his picture online, and and people were liking it. And then Allison posted, you know, support for it, but also. Please, I hope no one picks on him. I, you know. I was worried about him that he yes. was going to be bullied. You know, that somebody would say that's not a real career or something right. so. negative like that. It is a real career. I, As you were wondering, it is a real career. <laughs> yes. I know. It's the only job I've ever had that I've yes. had health insurance, being a professional <laughs> artist. But, um, yeah. so there's, He had so a great experience, for the record. Everybody was wonderful to him. But so... Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I do deal a lot with parents because I am the chair of the program. So mm -hmm. we do campus preview day and those kinds of things. And um, parents are always a, a panic stricken when their children say, I want to be art majors. Now, that won't happen to your children, Ryan, um, which I'm happy about. But yes. there's always that moment where people get kind of nervous, like, how are you going to pay your bills? Uh, so after weeding out the, um, I'm just looking for something to tell my parents people, I realized that there was a genuine population who wanted to be art therapists. Uh, and I had a really extraordinary student who figured it out for herself. Mm -hmm. um, we reached a point in the university uh, where um, some things changed. And there was the opportunity to make what we call an emphasis within the art major. So uh, the timing was right to explore this. And I looked up what it took to go to um, get your master's degree in counseling uh, art therapy. And I worked back from that. Uh, I was incredibly happy uh, to see that it just to get admittance into a master's program, you do have to have a portfolio. You have to um, visibly demonstrate that you are an art practitioner. Um, and so then I knew it was right to house the emphasis within the art program. Uh, at that point, I came to Ryan and to his um, colleague, Kate, and we worked out which courses would be the most um, beneficial to the students, taking into consideration the kind of experience that they were going to need in psychology in order to get um, admitted into a master's of counseling program. So that's uh, working together. That's when we created the um, emphasis in pre-art therapy through the art major. Um, and uh, I think of it as a pre-professional program because you, do, you, you won't graduate and be an art therapist. You do have to go on and get your master's degree because you are going to be a mental health counselor. And um, a lot of the checks and balances, and I think, Sawa, you were in that meeting, mm -hmm. a lot of the checks that I wanted to make sure was that, uh, of, were that we weren't irresponsibly setting people up to um, uh, sort of amateur hour, Mm -hmm. pop psychology kinds of situations. I, I really do believe that mental health has to be taken very seriously and that if we were going to set students up to go into a field um, like that, that they needed to be right. absolutely and responsibly prepared to do that. Very good. Yeah. Um, well, and I think we have I think I've declared, I've approved de declarations on, for three students who are currently on track. Yeah, which yeah. is really exciting. So this is good. Well, I want to open it up to questions from the audience. So if you have a question, you can come on up to this microphone. 
This is the moment I was scared of. There we go. Yay. All right. Round of applause for the person who made it. And can you actually just start out by saying your name and then maybe, um, so if you have a favorite artist, great. If you don't, maybe a favorite author that you could share. Uh, here, I put people That's on That's a really spot. hard question. So okay. can I like pass? Just, just name that <laughs> Okay. My name is Brianna. I'm an art major, so that's why that question is hard. Oh, okay. um, But uh, my question was, what makes somebody seek out art therapy? A lot of times they're referred to me by someone who knows what I do. Mm -hmm. um, other times there are people I know through my social work, mm -hmm. through my, my other job, and I kind of nudge them my way, a little self-referral, it's totally <laughs> but um, it just happens that way. Not, I, it's not like I don't bill insurance for it or anything. So um, those are two really common mm -hmm. ways. I think I can really only speak for myself, but I think other people who do bill um, directly to the people for hours of art therapy. Those people seeking out therapy, I think a lot of times it's parents for their children, and a lot of times um, it's individuals who really are seeking it out because they know what they can get from mm -hmm. it already. They just need someone to help them get there. So then what exactly, I know there's the art aspect, obviously, of art therapy, but what makes it different than from like a regular therapy session? Um, they don't have to speak <laughs> at all if they don't want to and I'll, honestly that's what I prefer I like to see like I like this if if someone comes to me and is drawing or painting for an hour and they don't speak and they it doesn't look like a chore to them that's perfect that's that's therapeutic and that's a really easy job for, for me <laughs> but it is it is it happens that way because because they're they're connected with what they're doing and it's therapeutic for them so that's like the exor exercise type category of art therapy mm -hmm. um sometimes sometimes people are a lot you know they'll stop and they'll talk to me they'll stop and, and a lot of times it's really tough to get them to do any artwork <coughs> they want just to talk that has um, never happened to me no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh, it, in, a lot of the way, in a lot of ways, it can be really similar, but it's usually different for one reason or another. So, do you have, like, any leading questions, then, when you, like, start, a, I guess, a session? Do you, like, oh, so just write how you're, or paint how you're feeling today? It's, like, how, I guess, how does, uh, how does I, that work? What do you want from this, and what happened to you? Those are the two things I want to know. Cool. Okay. I think those are all my questions, so. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Other questions? Come on up. So I have kind of, kind of got a few questions. Oh, so quick. Yep, come on up to the microphone so oh, we can hear. Okay, okay. But then. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and just okay. when you come up, maybe just say your name and then you can Hi. Um, okay, my name's Rebecca. Is that okay? Yep. Okay. Um, so, so I teach English here, and there are always students who are drawing in class, which is really cool. No, that actually is really a good thing. Like, I've read that that keeps you engaged and thinking about particular students who have done that. They usually, you know, do have really intelligent 
often really profound things to say about the books, and there was one who brought in a sketch of one of the characters a couple of years ago that she'd been doing in class and changing as the class went on. And so I was wondering if there's anything that you know as, as an um, art therapist that can explain why drawing, drawing while you're talking about a story makes you more engaged with it, and also whether any of that is applicable to people out there who might be drawing or otherwise making art while they're paying attention to something else and need people to know that that's okay. Okay. I could tell you that I was shamed for uh, <laughs> drawing in my notes when I was in like fourth or fifth grade. I was a really terrible student and I had to like show my notes to my teacher after class so that they knew I was actually doing some, taking notes. And he looked and I'd drawn a camel and um, <laughs> he shamed me for it and said like that's a waste of time. So uh, that's probably why you never took an art. <laughs> no, I think honestly it is. That mm -hmm. coupled yeah. with some other, oh, yeah. Thinking. So yes. yeah, everybody be sad for me. I could <laughs> think of what an incredible artist I could have been, uh, but name? instead, <laughs> you know, I actually remember, but I'm not gonna <laughs> say. <it. laughs> well, I uh, because I'm a knitter, I'm always looking for reasons to justify knitting, and. Um, and I do know that there have been studies, and maybe you know more about this than I do or, or can follow up. Um, fine motor skills occupying your hands uh, can increase your memory of what you've heard audio. Uh, and I know that uh, that's how I remembered everything in my art history classes was by drawing pictures. And, they, and I wasn't actually drawing pictures of what I was looking at all the time, but um, I do find that I retain a lot more information if my hands are occupied uh, when I'm in a lecture environment. I know that just anecdotally, but I know there's also um, some research to support that. Um, so I, I do think it has to do with the physical ask, act of moving your hands. They're also doing these studies now that show that people who take their notes with a pen rather than keying them into their uh, tablet or their mm -hmm. phone or um, whatever, uh, you retain more if, if your hand is actually occupied while you're listening. And I don't know if it just occupies part of your brain that could be distracted or I'm not sure how it works. You guys mm -hmm. would know much better than I, but uh, there, there is evidence to show that that is a real thing that happens. And I think some of it is from learning, so correct me if I'm wrong, but some of it is just, uh, it, it's the cues. It's the, you, you start to associate the material with the picture you've drawn and things like that. But that's one of the reasons why I guess I've actually, I think there's mixed opinions on this, but I've, I've heard people discouraging people from rewriting notes from meetings or things like that, that if you rewrite them, you, you lose some of those cues that you might include in the margins and things like that. Well, I know that um, I've seen somewhere, it's either a book or it was an article that was published, um, doodles of presidents past. You know, every president doodled. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if they still doodle, but <laughs> I'm old. So there was a point when all the presidents took their meeting notes uh, using a pad of paper and a writing implement and they all doodled. And there was some analysis of the presidential doodles and some hmm. attempt to link up, you know, JFK's drawing of cubes ah. with, I don't know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> I, I don't remember specifically. But right. I was happy to see all the presidents drew in their margins. I am intrigued. Do you want to? 
come up and ask a question? Uh, oh, we've got. Come on up. You can. We'll take a couple more. Yeah, and then. So my name's Nadia Yonke, and I graduated with an art degree, and I'm now an artist in, locally in Green Bay. And I've uh, worked with some clients at uh, Curative Connections for people who have Alzheimer's in the early stages. And the, um, the nonprofit organization moved to Madison, and now they're working with people who have later stages of Alzheimer's. And I believe that um, art therapy touches parts of the brain um, that hasn't been tapped into before. And I just wanted to ask you, what were some of your success stories with your clients and um, how, how not, not really graduate, but how had they overcome their um, limitations and have they moved on to life and such mm -hmm. like, yeah. so. I've never you. had the opportunity to work with anyone with, with Alzheimer's, but that's really interesting. I can see how that, you know, that the, it's the cue thing all over again, I think, mm -hmm. it, maybe. But um, some of the, the successes I've had, that it, when art therapy goes right, it's a beautiful thing. It feels so good for everybody involved. And, and a couple of times I've had just um, people that have become co confident, you know, self-confidence that wasn't there, self-esteem that was non-existent. Now, like... I'm like their pillar, I'm, I'm their grounding sort of uh, force for their self-esteem. They know it's there, they just, whenever they see me, they, they're like, they, it's internalized. It's, it, I'm their visual cue for their self-esteem kind of because of what they've done, what they've done um, with me. And all I did was create the environment. The environment was 99.9% .9 of it, they did the rest. Um, but. The safe environment and the consistency coming from me um, and being sort of, of trying to be a vessel for, for their artwork um, is how I've gotten there. And that's also, that's, ha that's what I think of when I think about my, um, the good times. And <laughs> um, another was a, is a couple of kids that just would really get into it and just, you could, it, their parents would drop them off and they go right for the paints or they go right for that one thing that they want and I know they, <laughs> I know what they're gonna do the whole time, they're gonna do the same thing for about an hour or two hours, but they just go and go and go and go and they just look so happy. I love that. Nice. Did you have a question? Come on up. My name is Marianne Schultz. I really appreciated what you said because it kind of helped me. Um, and I hope you can just help me a little bit with the challenge that I have. I'm actually, I've written a book. And in the back of the book, I put the baby picture of my son. And he got totally upset with me. He said, Mom, you've been doing artwork and writing since you've been four years old. He said, I want you to find the, the scrap iron kid from within you. And I'm really struggling with that. Um, because I want, I've always been good at drawing faces, which a lot of people aren't, even if you go back into centuries, a lot of people can't draw faces, but I've happened to be really good at that when people see my artwork, and he wants me to come up with a face, and it's like, how? I'm not drawing it out. I mean, it's, it's just not coming, so what do you do 
when you're stuck. I've gone back to like drawing eyes, gone online, looked at pictures of kids. He said, Mom, you can't do that. See, I have a, a, a my son is kind of like telling me. He said, you, it has to come from within. And I'm thinking, well, all of our heart, all of our art comes from within. But as you guys were talking, I was thinking, when I draw this person, I want the aha of the soul to come through the face. Can you guys help me with that at all? Well, two things sprang to mind. First of all, um, Van Gogh painted uh, maybe a dozen self-portraits. Van Gogh painted self-portraits fairly obsessively, but you can document what was going on in his life. Um, so maybe your solution is not just one drawing. Maybe your solution is multiple drawings um, expressing different sides of that person. Uh, the other thing that seems to help, and I, art students, you can back me up on this, you're required to do self-portraits and also um, there's a figure drawing requirement. Um, so when you think deeply about the person that you're trying to draw, oftentimes, I find anyway, uh, that that person tends to pop up from the page a little bit more. Um, but concentrating very much on the person as you know them is important, but also, um, like I said, maybe it's more than one drawing uh, on that page, three or four drawings of that person uh, expressing different aspects of their personality. That might help you out too. We might be able to take one more if there is one. Ellen, okay. we can take two. Both of you get to come up, but come on up, Ellen. Um, you've talked about uh, almost exclusively art, visual art therapy. And I know there are protocols for therapies in other forms of art, music, drama, dance, poetry. Um, but of those other forms of art don't always kind of have that mental illness opposite side sometimes, uh, as much as visual art does, at least in my experience. Because I'm a musician, so none of us are um, are mentally yeah, right, right. at yeah. all, yeah. except yeah. since I met Allison and now I'm a, now I'm a knitter. <laughs> <laughs> Not but uh, how do, do you? Can you speak to these other kinds of therapies at all? Um, and I know your experience here is a lot in with the visual art, but uh, what are maybe some commonalities between using other forms of art to do therapy as well? We're all looking at Casey. Yeah. Well, we're all really visual artists, but I just want to point out that um, mental illness in musicians is pretty well documented. Uh, if, if we take into consideration especially drug and alcohol abuse. Think, well, that's yeah. true. Um, but I think uh, it, it occurs to me in music or in dance that also those are nonverbal languages, um, that choreography can be seen as a language and also um, musical like noise, um, I have a, a good friend who has his BFA in sound from the School of the Art Institute. And, um, so that was his major mode of, of self-expression was noises uh, for a long time until he became a visual artist. So um, I think there are different ways to get to what we're talking about. 
It doesn't have to be a visual language, but maybe the, the um, takeaway is just that there are different languages for expression and that there are different tools. Maybe you just need to find the tool that works best for you. There's, even in the visual arts, there are three-dimensional artists and two-dimensional artists, and um, drawing might not be as helpful to me as working with clay or, or fiber or something like that. One time I, I met a, <clears throat> a music therapist who played the harp, and she would go into hospice settings and connect to their heart or look at their heart monitor somehow and play some sort of rhythm with their heart Fascinating. beat. It, to me, that was like science, more, a lot yeah. more scientific. Than, yeah. That's amazing. Interesting. It's amazing. Yeah. And you can actually, if you're too agitated, you start at the level of their heartbeat and then gradually slow it down. That's interesting. All right, I think we've got time for one more question before we say our goodbyes. Um. <laughs> so, my name is Emily Alice. I'm one of the art therapy majors here at Green Bay. And whenever I say that, I get a lot of questions because actually people don't really know what that is and half the time I don't either. But a lot of times I get asked what, if there's specific groups of people or specific mental illnesses that are um, benefit most from art therapy. So I was wondering if in your experience, if there's ever been uh, specific people that you work with the most or get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. People who have depression that have the energy and the drive and want and the energy really to do art that that's been successful a lot i don't i couldn't say that that's that's the um characteristic of someone who's going to be successful but i really when you're when you're first asking a question i thought no it's just kind of hit or miss anybody and everybody that's really what i think i think it could be anybody well, I want to say thank you to all of you for being here. Um, before we go, though, I have a couple quick things I want to mention. First of all, Allison, I want, to give, I want to talk a little bit about the Flax Project. Can you describe that for people and tell people a little bit about it? Sure. Um, it's, it's entirely unique to UWGB, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, I have been collaborating, I think, for five years, five, five or six, six years, going on six years. With Heidi, if you want to come my up, esteemed, <laughs> okay. with my esteemed colleague from history, Dr. Heidi Sherman. Um, and what we've been doing is um, uh, our, well, we, we started out inspired by the idea of experiential archaeology, uh, trying to find out how things um, were done in uh, the Middle Ages. Um, and the way that we decided to do that was to try to replicate what we thought happened. Um, so we planted a crop of flax. We had one student that we shared in common at the beginning of the project. We planted seeds, and then we were stunned when plants grew. And <laughs> we basically taught ourselves how to farm flax. Um, but that's not the end of the story by any means, because once you have a flax crop, you need to process it into linen. Um, and linen is a, a fiber like cotton or wool that is used to make cloth. So then we had to call in some experts to show us how to spin linen. It's um, a unique fiber. And, um, and then how would, say, the Vikings have spun and woven? 
um, this put us into contact with some amazing, amazing um, textile historians in Denmark. Uh, we've been able to work with the Copenhagen. Um, why am I blanking on CTR? What does that stand for? Center for Textile, Center for textile <laughs> Research. <laughs> I blanked out on that. Um, and so we've, we've uh, actually uh, been working on raising money to bring a um, incredible replica of a Viking house uh, to campus so that uh, we have a center where we can um, teach other people how to do what we've learned um, and give people a, t a taste of really what it was like to live in Northern Europe and to um, and basically get all of your clothes and the giant sails you need to conquer the world um, with this fiber. We Well, we really would need sheep to do the whole thing, but we haven't really we haven't gotten the secured sheep yet. that <laughs> as a possibility there for us. Yeah, but still we, time. girls yeah. can dream, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so I have had the pleasure of seeing you all present on this, and I thought it was fascinating. If anybody, if you have the opportunity to, to see you to present on this it's a really really great thing yeah so. we're sort of like a scholarly comedy team so <laughs> right. like pen and um, teller on flax right, right. yes so um <laughs> pen and teller on flax that is now that's what i'm gonna think anytime you guys <laughs> so um um, Casey, uh, thank you very much for being here. Anything else you want to say before we uh, call it a day? Where can people find you if they want to, if they want to participate or, or anything like that? Yeah, um, I work at a place called Advocates for Healthy Transitional Living. Okay. That's where I do, I do social work and a little bit of art therapy. That's you can find me there. Standing, great. And, and Sal, well, thank you very much. Sal, I tell people a little bit about the lab you run. I know it's different from what we're talking about, but it's, it's super <laughs> it's important. And another really cool thing happening here yeah. at UW-Green Bay. I work with children. Currently, I have a project with kids between three to five. So if any of you have children who want to participate in our research, we are always welcome. Uh, you, the kids get to do something fun, play some games. And right now, we, are, we have this device that we can measure people's attention where they are looking at on the screen. It's called an eye tracker, so it's really cool. And we are getting an EEG, like a brain cap, so we can actually see brain waves and things like that too. So we are really excited about doing our research. Very good. Yeah. My, my kids have both been participants, yes. and they both <laughs> asked to come back uh, relatively yes. often. So it might be because Welcome. they like eating on campus a lot, and I always let them have dinner. When we're... Um, yeah. so, but yeah. So, well, thank you all very much, and thank you all very much for coming thank today. Couple quick things as we finish up here. Our next, uh, excuse me, our next episode is going to be on UW Green Bay Psych Student Research. So our big regional conference, the Midwestern Psychological Association conference, is right around the corner at the end of April, and we're going to be talking with the various students from the psych program who are presenting there. So, but before we go, I want to say, uh, in addition to thank you to our guests, I want to thank Kate Farley, our producer, and I also want to thank Kimberly Vlees, our podcast artist. So thank you both very much. Thank you.